for years we've heard close Rikers, shut it down, but no one's ever spoken specifically about the women's jails on on Rikers and the needs of women, girls, trans, gender nonconforming communities that are housed there. Right now, the governor and the mayor have a scheme to move us from Rosie's, which is a county lockup facility that for the most part holds detained people that are pre-sentenced awaiting trial. I want to move them up to the Bedford Correctional Facility in Westchester, which is a maximum security state prison run by the Department of uh, Corrections and Community Renewal. This is a horrible idea for any number of reasons. Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Up first, we have our monthly roundup of prison disturbances, as compiled by Perilous Chronicle. Find out more at perilouschronicle.org. On October 2nd, two prisoners held at Independence County Jail in Batesville, Arkansas, are facing felony charges for a disturbance and escape attempt at the jail. According to White River Now News, a computer tablet was thrown on the floor and began to smoke, leading to an evacuation to the recreation yard while the smoke was cleared. Allegedly, another prisoner tried to escape the jail during the evacuation, but was not successful. Both the prisoner who threw the tablet and the one who tried to escape have now been charged with, quote, impairing the operation of a vital public facility and criminal mischief. On October 14th, five prisoners escaped from the Baton Rouge Juvenile Detention Center in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. According to incident reports, the detainees attacked guards and stole facility keys and then unlocked the cells of others that escaped. They exited through a door near a courtroom and then allegedly stole a car belonging to one of the guards. Officials said the detention center is understaffed and the facility is, quote, antiquated. All five prisoners have been recaptured, one who was at large for two weeks and arrested on Thursday, October 28th. According to The Advocate, two other prisoners escaped from this juvenile facility in July of this year. They were recaptured a day later. On October 17th, a disturbance was reported at Long Creek Youth Development Center in South Portland, Maine. It was reported that the South Portland police were called to the facility for six hours because a group of prisoners detained in the juvenile facility had broken windows and torn apart classrooms and units. Several thousands of dollars of damages were reported. It is unclear what started the disturbance and no injuries were reported. WMTV also reported that there were five other incidents in August and September this year at the same facility, causing more than $100,000 in property damage. On Tuesday, October 19th, prisoners at Monterey County Jail in Salinas, California, started a hunger strike to protest COVID-19 conditions and the death of Sergio Shaggy Gonzalez due to COVID-19. 
The hunger strike started shortly after an outbreak of the Delta variant in the jail in September and after the death of Gonzalez on September 24th. Officials have claimed that Gonzalez died by suicide, but prisoners inside say it was due to the virus. It is unclear how many were involved in the hunger strike, but groups such as Community Before Cops and the MILPA Collective have publicized the strikers' demands and have held solidarity demos outside the jail. The demands include updated medical guidelines on COVID-19, adequate sanitation supplies, better responses from medical staff, and providing blankets and thermals for elderly prisoners. The hunger strike ended on October 22nd, but protesters have continued to organize against the inhumane treatment. In March of last year, 63 prisoners in both the women's and men's section of the jail collectively refused meals in fear of catching COVID-19. At around 3 p.m. on Wednesday, October 20th, a prisoner at Vernon C. Bank Correctional Center in Bronx, New York, resisted being handcuffed by two guards after refusing to leave the housing unit. According to a DOC official, other prisoners threw chairs at the guards while they were trying to handcuff the prisoner. One guard broke their ankle and another broke their finger. Pepper spray was allegedly used to quell the disturbance. The initial cause of the disturbance is unknown. Vernon C. Bank Correctional Center is often nicknamed The Boat. It is an 800-bed jail barge that is part of the New York City Department of Corrections and is anchored off of the Bronx's southern shore. On October 28th, two prisoners escaped from Johnston County Jail in Smithfield, North Carolina. According to Johnston County Sheriff Gary Dodd, one prisoner broke through a concrete wall in his cell that allowed him access to a maintenance area. He went through the plumbing system and allegedly stole a vehicle. It is unclear how the other prisoner was involved. One prisoner was recaptured shortly after the escape. The other was located by the police a day later, October 29th. According to KXII News, a pursuit ensued and the prisoner was shot by the police. His injuries were reported to not be life-threatening. On October 29th, two prisoners escaped from the LaFleur County Detention Center in Poto, Oklahoma. According to KMBC News, the prisoners escaped through a hole in a steel wall, knocked out a window, and escaped from the facility. Allegedly, an unlocked truck with keys inside was taken outside of the facility. Both prisoners have been recaptured. On October 27th, environmental and human rights lawyer Steve Donziger, whose case we reported on before, turned himself into a federal prison in Danbury, Connecticut, to begin serving a six-month sentence for six counts of criminal contempt of court for refusing to turn over his laptop and other electronic devices to the giant oil company Chevron. He argued that doing so would jeopardize his client's privacy. Donziger has already spent over 800 days in home detention, where he was forced to wear an electronic ankle shackle that monitored and restricted his movements. In suing Chevron, Donziger won a $9.5 billion lawsuit on behalf of 30,000 indigenous people in Ecuador. For years, Chevron dumped carcinogenic waste from its oil extraction operations in the Ecuadorian rainforest, killing thousands of people and ruining their land and water. Chevron refused to pay to clean up the wreckage despite losing the court case and instead began a lengthy vendetta against Donziger. Donziger said the intention of the vendetta was to intimidate climate justice activists and prevent them from going after corporate polluters. 
the U.S. government illegally kidnapped, imprisoned, tortured, and plans to try Venezuelan diplomat Alex Saab for the quote-unquote crime of daring to defy U.S. sanctions against his country and seeking to procure food, medicine, and other essentials for the Venezuelan people. Sanctions, more properly called unilateral coercive actions, collectively punish a country economically, causing hardships and even death among its people. Venezuela is struggling to provide its people with basic necessities because of U.S. sanctions, coupled with the COVID-19 pandemic. When he was captured by the U.S. in June 2020, Saab was trying to negotiate the purchase of food and medications from Iran. He was arrested in Cabo Verde while en route for a trade deal that would have helped Venezuela obtain essentials amid the U.S. blockade. Saab was illegally held in Cabo Verde as the United States tried to obtain permission to extradite him on the basis of unfounded charges of money laundering. When that failed, the U.S. used extraordinary rendition on October 16th to bring him to Miami, where he is currently imprisoned. The U.S. is trying to make an example of Saab to deter others from flouting U.S. sanctions. On October 24th, 30 protesters rallied in Miami against the illegal U.S. extradition of Alex Saab. The U.S. hands-off Cuba and Venezuela-South Florida coalition hosted the event, which took place in Miami in front of a Simone Bolivar statue. Another free Alex Saab protest took place on November 1st outside the Miami Federal Detention Center. We condemn this illegal attempt by the U.S. justice system to imprison and put on trial a Venezuelan diplomat. The U.S. has a long history of furthering its imperialist agenda by making false accusations against the forces in its way, international and domestic. The only way to win in the face of this is solidarity between these forces and fighting back, said Will Blake of the Committee to Stop FBI Repression. 1.4 million children in the U.S. have an incarcerated parent. It's critical to the well-being of those children to be able to stay in touch with their parents. Because of the racist criminal justice system, Black families and communities are especially hurt by predatory telecom companies, which charge exorbitant rates for phone conversations between incarcerated people and their families. Currently, prison telecom corporations like Securus and GTL charge families as much as $16 for a 15-minute phone call. Federal legislation is needed to combat these cruel practices. It's important for Congress to pass the Martha Wright Prison Phone Justice Act so children can speak with their incarcerated parents without suffering financial hardship. The bill would require the Federal Communications Commission to place a cap on how much prisons and jails can charge incarcerated people and their families for phone calls. Recently, eight House representatives have co-sponsored the legislation, which indicates public pressure is working. Advocates of the bill say that families shouldn't have to make a decision between being able to speak with their incarcerated loved one and pay bills, but that's the reality that many families are facing. Right-wing drivers are deliberately hitting protesters with their vehicles, maiming and sometimes killing them, and the criminal justice system, for the most part, is letting them get away with it. A Boston Globe survey found that many drivers who had injured people either weren't charged with a crime or never faced a felony charge. Police, prosecutors, and legislators, who claim to be natural protectors of the public and civil rights, have not been neutral in dealing with this violence. The Globe investigation found that 139 such attacks had taken place between May 2020 and September 30, 2021. In those attacks, some 100 protesters were injured and three killed. However, the drivers faced charges in just 65 of those cases, with only 34 of those charges felonies. 
The other drivers faced only misdemeanors or minor traffic violation charges. In some cases, the protester who was struck by the car was charged with disorderly conduct or jaywalking, while the driver wasn't charged at all. There's a racist dimension to those attacks. They've taken place mainly at protests against police racism. When the driver's race is known, he or she is four times more likely to be a white person than a person of color. In numerous cases, witnesses have described drivers shouting racist slurs or, quote, all lives matter, unquote. A Virginia driver who rammed his truck into a Black Lives Matter protest was a member of the Ku Klux Klan and was charged with a hate crime. And now, we finish our conversation with Kelly Grace Price about the campaign to close Rosie's. Rosie's refers to the Rose M. Singer facility, an all-women's jail on Rikers Island. On average, Rosie's detains around 630 women, girls, transgender, gender nonconforming, and intersex females while they await trial. Suzanne Singer, the granddaughter of the jail's namesake, wrote an op-ed for the New York Times highlighting the abuses at Rosie's. Her description of the facility is damning and powerful. Quote, Many of the women incarcerated at Rosie's should never have been committed there. 85% of them are mothers. A similar percentage have substance abuse disorders. Most have suffered trauma and violence at the hands of men, and two-thirds report to having a mental illness. 70% of the women at Rikers are awaiting trial. Pre-trial detention should be eliminated for low-level, non-violent crimes. Rather, these women should be sent to community-based alternative programs. The Rose M. Singer Center was supposed to be a beacon to the world, a place where women caught up in the criminal justice system would be treated humanely and kept safe. The jail has not lived up to that vision, however. Instead, it has devolved into a torture chamber where women are routinely abused, housed in unsanitary conditions, and denied medical and mental health services. They are treated as less than human, not as our grandmothers, mothers, daughters, and sisters. Unquote. Last time, Kelly Grace Price walked us through the basics of the Rose M. Singer facility, including examples of the corruption and greed that permeate the New York Board of Corrections. This time, Price discusses issues with prisoner advocacy groups and the ways in which Rosie's puts undue pressure on its female inmates, pressures that male prisoners in different Rikers units don't have to face. She references abuses at the Bedford Hills facility, an upstate institution that many women are transferred to from Rosie's. Content warning for sexual violence. I can only imagine Rikers Island, they would wake you up at 4 a.m. to get to court on time. I can only imagine what would happen. How long, what, what, midnight they wake you up to go to court? I just can't imagine. But men don't have to suffer that transportation obstacle. And the other thing that really upset me about this, the move was that, uh, or the plan move was that, again, advocacy groups scuttled. Nobody would take on the responsibility of fighting against the governor and the mayor's move, which was insane. The National Organization for Women was founded here in New York City, but you heard not a peep from Sonia Osario at now. Uh, the same with a number of other advocacy groups that purport to raise the voices of incarcerated and detained women. You heard absolutely not a peep from them. And this, this stuff, there's a reason why people that have been formerly incarcerated form their own advocacy groups because we don't want to be bought off. We're tired of being made to compete against each other for jobs, for stipends, for uh, speaking fees. And 
let me tell you something. The people that run advocacy groups, not all of them are also benevolent. There's been all kinds of problems rife in the advocacy community, especially towards women participating in the advocacy community. So there's a reason why you get people like Cecily McMillan and me that form our own group. People don't tend to take incarcerated people that have their own groups solely together very seriously because they feel like we have to have a bunch of lawyers and high-powered advocates and famous people that wear suits and have had other high-powered advocacy jobs speak for us. But at the end of the day, all that does is further water down our voices. So you never hear about these problems in the Board of Correction. You never hear about this background stuff going on from the other advocacy groups. But this is the core of the issue. This is really the, the heart of the matter. Um, so, you know, maybe we're a little self-serving when we say that our voices are essential in this process, but we know they are because no one else is saying the things that we say. No one else was out there trying to get lawyers to represent the women of Roses. Nobody else did it. And every, every advocacy group we called all said the same thing to us. We can't risk our funding. And for 240 women, no one were going to do it. Now, and that, that's the kind of thing that breaks my heart. I remember when I was sent to Rikers, that feeling of utter helplessness. It took years to, to leave me. But I remember when I finally got on that MTA bus to come home from Rikers. I was so happy. I didn't have shoes. My stockings were ripped. I had no money. Thank God I had my keys to get into my apartment. But at least I was able to just hop on the subway, to hop on the MTA and go to Queens Plaza and take the subway to Bryant Park and change to a train that took me uptown to Harlem and walk home to my brownstone on 120th Street. But you don't have that relief when you're in Westchester. I can't imagine what the people that are being sent there are feeling right now. I, I don't mean to sound so saccharine and so dramatic, but nobody else cares about us. And it's the people in Rosie's that all the, the trauma has trickled down to on us anyway. You know, we're in there because of some guy's hand problem or he got us caught up in some sex work scheme where we trap guys in a hotel to rob other guys. Everyone's got a story for why they're there. And everyone scores political points off of us because the DAs want their conviction rates and the correction officers, they need their jobs. They need bodies in the cells to keep the union strong. And at the end of the day, no one's there to help the women and girls of Rosie's. And the other thing that no one's talking about is that sexual violence in Westchester at Bedford is out of control. There were two women, Jane Doe and Jane Smith, that were named in a lawsuit back in 2015, a class action lawsuit against New York City for sexual violence on Rikers. Both of those women were eventually convicted and sent to Bedford Hills. But when they each got there, both of them suffered extreme sexual violence at the hands of correction captains at Bedford. These are women that had in their file that they had been raped repeatedly on Rikers, had sued New York City and won millions of dollars this was in their file, but when they were sent to Bedford, nothing was done. They weren't given any extra protections. There weren't even cameras hung up in the medical unit. One of the women was raped in the medical unit when the guards escorted her for a doctor's appointment. So if the administrators at Bedford, the warden and the chief PREA officer and the chief of investigations and the chief of upstate docs himself, weren't even trying to do something to 
make sure that these two women that had already been very publicly and brutally raped were protected. I don't understand how we think that we can send 240 more women up to Bedford. Their rapes just happened in 2019 and 2020. These are not distant events. And they were repeated rapes. It wasn't just once or twice. The women filed another complaint in July. uh, And the facts in the complaint are harrowing. In some instances, correction officers, captains, covered for each other as they swapped out the woman, one of the women, for oral sex. It's just harrowing to think that this is an institution that anyone has confidence in. Last week, the corrections commissioner here in New York City, Vincent Schiraldi, told us that he toured Bedford and that it was a superior facility to his, which you never ever hear people in charge of jails and prisons brag that another one was better than theirs, but that was the plan last week. And you heard Vincent Schiraldi say what a wonderful facility it was how they had great programs and how they were going to have buses that would take people from New York City up there and they would install new kiosks and make sure everybody's medical care was contiguous. And all I had to say to Commissioner Schiraldi is, Commissioner Schiraldi, on your visit to Bedford, did the seven dwarves make you a meal? Did Cinderella make everybody's bed? Did Bambi come and hug you? Did Thumper bring you a flower? Because you're living in fantasy land. There have been, in the last five years, nine corrections officers charged with sexual assault at Bedford. And the the same amount of time at Rikers, and I guarantee you there's the same amount of rapes and sexual assault going on, two corrections officers. One was a woman was charged with sexual assault. The other thing that, that is horrible about sending women upstate to docks regarding sexual assault is the upstate docks corrections officers contract allows the corrections officers union to have the last say on discipline for acts of sexual violence against people caged. We've been trying to change that contract for years. We pushed really hard a few years ago uh, in 2018, 2019, when that contract was up for renewal and they were renegotiating it. We did everything we could to get that particular clause pulled out of the contract, but Cuomo let it stand and now that contract is still valid for a few more years. So even if you're someone that's been sent to Bedford and you're raped violently, gang raped, it's the corrections officers union that gets to decide what their final punishment is. This is outside of the criminal court, of course. But the barrier to get local DAs to prosecute corrections officers is very, very high. So most of these things are handled in the oath court, which is the private internal agency disciplinary court. In those proceedings, it's the corrections officers union that gets final say so over the oath appointed judges for what the punishment is for things like, you know, forcing oral sex on a on someone in your care and custody. We don't have that, thank goodness. Our our contract here in New York City with our corrections officers is pretty miserable, um, including giving them unlimited sick time, which has created all kinds of havoc, but we don't have that particular clause. Anyone that thinks uh, that moving women and girls to Bedford is a good idea is purely on the mayor's payroll. And I'm very upset with the governor. I would have thought that she would have approached these matters a little more carefully, especially in this environment of gender equity that she's been championing so vocally. 
Uh, and so I'm a little dismayed about who's in her ear and who's advising her on these matters. You know, we've made every attempt to get in her ear, but of course it's been unsuccessful, but we're going to keep trying. At the end of the day, um, I do believe that we will prevent the transfer of women permanently to Bedford, but it, it's, it's definitely going to take some time to undo the work that has already started in motion. And I'm only hoping that we can get some high profile people involved to try and you know, throw a, a wrench in the machine because they're the only people that the mayor and the governor seem to listen to. I've suggested to the Board of Correction that they sue because they have organizational standing. Really, they're the entity that are supposed to be managing rule change processes that govern the way that people are treated while in custody. So I'm not going to hold my breath for that. But it would be really cool to see if we had some advocates on the board that were slighted enough by this um, procedural undermining that they actually stood up and you know, shot an arrow back at the mayor's office's plan. I, I doubt that that will happen. I, I, I don't think people want to mire themselves in that kind of litigious um, advocacy, but we're only one small organization and the other, other criminal justice organizations out there have all already drawn their line in the sand. They've decided that they'll be supporting the mayor and the governor on this specific plan and uh, we're at a loss. We hope that our message is lofted high. We really thank Prison News Network for listening to the work that we're doing to try and stop the wheels. You know, we're an organization that does not take money for our work for a reason. So we're not asking for people to support us. We're not asking for people to mail us checks or Venmo us money, but we're asking for your voice. There's more women in New York City than men by a couple percentage points. And I was one of those women that had never been arrested before, had never uh, been incarcerated, was ripped asunder from my happy life as a photo editor and thrown on Rikers Island. I don't think people understand how quickly your life can change. And I ask anyone that listens to your program, there's a sign-on letter that we put out there to stop the, the transfers, sign on to that. But just in general, don't allow gender inequity to stand as policy. This is something as women and as feminists that I think needs to be a mandate. When there's a convenient plan that requires a slight ebbing of our rights, it's not okay. It's not something that we can barter with. It's not something that we should use for political horse trading. Gender equity is the essence of our livelihoods and the essence of our ability to live as free thinkers, free people, to participate in society equally. And it shouldn't be a mandate that people just shove aside because they think that the Me Too movement is passe. This should be the lifeblood of everyone's advocacy. Just because we're in jail does not mean that we're different than you are. If you consider yourself a feminist, this is an issue that you should be addressing. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. Please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. You can call in on behalf of a loved one or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765 343 6236. 
You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash kiteline radio show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.